today's readings from Luke 10, 25 to 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to a place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we just ask you to come. Would you uh, send your spirit, Lord? Would you meet us in just like the very depths? Like speak to us on those issues that like we don't even know that need to be spoken to. Father, would you bless the word? Would you bless our time together as a family? And just let this be like a sacred space this morning. We praise you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You guys can be seated. Let me get. There is a study from long ago given to Princeton University seminary students. There's about 40 seminary students that were participated in the study, and they were split into two different groups. One of these groups was told that they had just a few minutes before they were going to give like a quick lecture on job opportunities after completing their field of study in seminary. And the other group was told they had just a few minutes to go and give a teaching on the Good Samaritan, on this parable from Jesus. And then within these two groups, they split those halves in half, making four groups, gave one group five minutes to prepare, the other 15, and then the other Good Samaritan group, one group five minutes, and the other 15. So there's these four groups that are released in intervals to go to the designated space where they are supposed to give these talks on either field of study and job opportunities or the parable of the Good Samaritan. I just want to be really clear. Last week, Brandon taught and opened with a parable. This is not a parable. This is an actual story from a study done at Princeton Seminary. Just want to make sure before I lost you. But so these groups are, have to head down this specific pathway to get to the space where they're supposed to speak. And conveniently enough, the people who are hosting the study have put a person in great need along their path. They've put a person in great need, someone who needed help, much like this parable, on their path. 
And the reality is that these seminary students, uh, their reaction teaches us something. Nearly no one stops to help the person in need. So these groups of, this group of seminary students who's going to teach on the parable of the Good Samaritan encounter a person in need and bypass the man just the same as the group who's teaching on something else. This study has been duplicated and tried elsewhere, but the factor, it's really interesting, the factor that ties more into helping than any other is not religious affiliation. It's not having just read the Sermon on the Mount. It's not having just read the parable of the Good Samaritan. Like None of those things have any bearing on whether people helped or not. The thing that mattered most was if the bypasser felt like they were in a hurry. That was the singular factor they could, they could mark, they could, like, the single variable they could identify that, that dictated whether someone stopped and helped or not. Which reminds me of the line from Dallas Willards, who uh, said, like, the great call of spiritual life is to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. But that's another sermon and another story. But I think, I think there's a picture here of the Good Samaritan that's really important for us. You see, this, this test, the, the test in this seminary study, is really about knowledge and application of that knowledge, or even about morality and application of that morality. If I were to extend it a bit further for our purpose of laws, protecting people who try to act in goodwill, we have become so familiar with this parable in our minds, it's actually like not even identifiable as a parable from Jesus anymore. It seems more like a story from the Gospels or words from Jesus' mouth as direct instruction rather than a parable that is trying to teach us a specific sort of thing. But our text today does not start with the parable. It starts with a lawyer. And this man stands up and asks Jesus, what must I do to, her- to inherit eternal life? And this question from this lawyer raises a few questions from the text for us. The first is, what is this man's intent? Why is he asking Jesus this question? Most scholars believe that this lawyer is intending to like set a trap for Jesus to catch him in some sort of like obscure teaching. They do not believe by any sense that he's trying to learn from Jesus, but that he's trying to create space for Jesus to put his foot in his mouth by contradicting the law of Moses, the thing that he is an expert in. The second is why the question on eternal life? Why the question on eternal life? Most of the Old Testament literature what would have been Jesus' Bible, is not concerned with life after you die. Most of the Old Testament, most of Jesus' Bible, is concerned with life lived well in obedience to God's ways here on earth. That's why we see Jesus like with the prayer, like on earth as it is in heaven. Not like when we get to heaven, but like may, may heaven come down to earth. May God's ways, may obedience, may following and participating in life in the kingdom of God, may that manifest on earth. So it's, it's a bit odd that he asks this question 
Um, and, and a part of this is interesting, and we, we miss it in the English, and I'm not an expert on Greek. Jordan can correct me later if I'm wrong, but of all the books I read and considered, I read people who, who read Greek, so I think that counts for something. Um, but one of the interesting things about this specific question is that when the lawyer asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life, what he is saying is like, what is the single thing, the one thing, the, like the single thing I must do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus takes this man's question, and as Jesus often does, he takes this question and then he answers with a question. Actually, like two questions as the story goes. Jesus says, what is written in the law and how do you read it? Or another way of saying that would be, how do you interpret so he flips the question back to the, to the lawyer, to the asker, and says, you tell me what you believe God requires of you to inherit eternal life. And the lawyer uh, quotes Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and adds on Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. Rabbis historically had said, like, this is the entirety of the Old Testament. This is God's invitation to his people to love God and to love neighbor. We see Jesus double downing on this when he's asked what the greatest commandment is throughout the synoptic gospels. He says the greatest commandment is to love God and love neighbor. These two things can't be separated. They belong together. And Jesus says to this man who answers that way about a question regarding eternal life, Jesus says you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live which I actually find really, really interesting because the response that this man gives is not the response that most of us would give in our evangelical circles of what must be done to inherit eternal life. If someone asked you what they must do to inherit eternal life, what would you tell them? What would you tell them? I think we would expect Jesus, or maybe I would expect Jesus to say something like, take up your cross and follow me, or have faith and believe in me, or confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that you would be saved and you would be healed and you will, something like that. But that isn't what we see Jesus affirming. We see Jesus affirming loving God and loving neighbor. There's something unique here about Jesus utilizing the law of Moses to bring the hearers along the journey from where they currently are. Sometimes the way that we talk or the way that we speak is like very other than the person that we're actually talking to. And we don't see Jesus doing that here. We see Jesus like meeting people where they are, almost in this like missional sort of mindset is the words we would use to describe it, to like bring people along in journey as they follow Jesus. And not only that, but Jesus takes this question about eternity, and he answers it not with an eternity mindset or eternity language. He says, Jesus says, do this and you will live. Do this and you will live, tying together life and eternal life. Jesus is not answering questions directly, and when he is answering questions, he's actually not answering the way they're being asked. We see this from Jesus often speaking to a deeper reality than what is being talked about on the surface. And in this conversation, this introduction to our parable, Jesus is doing much the same. We're almost to the parable, I promise. 
But the issue in this story, the issue like so far in this conversation, if this was the conversation that, that happens and it stops here, this never would have made it into Luke's writing. It never would have made it into the text. It never would have made it into the Bible. But fortunately for us, and not so fortunate for the lawyer, he continues in order to justify himself. And the lawyer asks the question, uh, the lawyer asks the question, who is my neighbor? And this is where Jesus launches into a parable as an answer. You see, in the story, the first question Jesus asks is a question The second question, Jesus tells a story and then asks another question at the end of his story. So join me in Luke 10. We'll read it again. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. Verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any experience extra expense you may have. There are quite a few pieces from this story that get revealed to us that we like need to take a look at in order to understand what's happening here. The first thing that we want to see is the first two bypassers are going down to Jericho. Jerusalem sits, that's where they're coming from, Jerusalem sits about 2,700 feet above sea level and Jericho about 800 feet below sea level. There is this downward picture away from the holy city that feels worth noting or mentioning, like these people are on a journey away from the holy city, and it's important because of how they're described as priest and Levite. You see, we understand by and large like the role of a priest conceptually. We have something that we can map onto that meaning of understanding. He is the one who directly participates in any activities that are happening in the temple. He is the one performing the sacrifice and offering the prayers, all those sorts of things. And we can kind of get that. But what we get a bit less is the role of the Levite. In the Old Testament, there are 12 tribes of Israel, and one of those tribes is the tribe of Levi. During the golden calf incident, if you know your Bible, Moses is up on Mount Sinai getting the commandments from God for his people to walk in obedience to him. And he comes down and they've already broken the first two commandments. The Israelite people who God had just saved from the oppression of the Egyptians are now worshiping a golden calf. So, so they're at the base of Mount Sinai And this is happening. People are worshiping. Israelites are worshiping the golden calf. And Moses shows up on the scene, and this is what happens in Exodus 32, verse 26. It says, Moses stood at the entrance to the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And and the scriptures say, and all the Levites ran to him. And there's some debate whether this is the moment that sort of solidifies the tribe of Levi or the Levites as a priestly tribe. So we have this idea of the priest walking down the mountain, but then we have this picture of the Levite walking down the mountain. 
But we want, when we see the word Levite, what we want to see is like this, this parable, this character in the story is like the gatekeeper into the temple. They're, they're given, the tribe of Levi is given over in priestly service. So whether that's like religious leading of music or access to the temple or preparing things for the priests, the tribe of Levi has given themselves to service in God and of the temple on behalf of the Jewish people. But that's why this moment is significant. That's why these two characters are pinned together. These characters indicate like their service to the temple. That's what they do with their lives. And, and it's important that they're coming. The position that Jesus wants us to get is that both of these people are highly religious men. Both of these people are given to service of God and community of faith. And they pass by this half-dead man on the road. These men are both deeply religious. They're religious authorities, even. And the best reason that can be surmised as to why they pass by is a speculative one. We aren't terribly sure. The text doesn't specifically tell us. But there are really only two choices that we see from the text, and both of them are not good choices, but we must choose one. The first is they just chose not to care. They chose not to care, so they passed by. They saw this man who was laying beaten and wounded and just decided not to help. Or the second option is that because the scriptures mention him as half dead, that this man could not be moving. And if this man, are half, if this man is dead and the Levite and the priest approach him, they are now going to be considered unclean. They are now going to be considered unclean by Jewish law and tradition because they interacted with a dead body. You could suppose either of these to be true from Jesus' words, but clearly the goal of Jesus sharing it this way is for us to not see these people in positive light. And I think there's some progressive depth to what we are supposed to see from this story, but I think the first is the most obvious. Being a person of compassion is important to God. Being a person of compassion is important to God. It is important for us as we follow God to allow our hearts to break for the people that we encounter in our day-to-day lives. Many of us, uh, as we've experienced just over the last decade, I would say, like an increase in our population of like houseless neighbors, most of us have like grown to not see those people anymore as we encounter them. We don't look in their eyes, we don't see their face, we don't, like, we don't know their name, and we just see them as an obstacle almost to avoid as we move about our day. And I think from Jesus' parable, like that ought to awaken as we encounter them, but I, I also know it's not the case all the time. And so we, like, there's, I don't think Jesus is going like, hey, every time there's a car stopped on the side of the road, you have to pull over and ask them if they need help. I don't think that that's the thing Jesus is getting after. I do think Jesus is inviting you to ensure your eyes are open to see the people who are hurting around you. That's what I think Jesus is wanting us to see. I do think Jesus is giving us an invitation to ensure that we are people of compassion and we allow our heart to break for the people that are hurting around us. While we recognize that we cannot solve every problem, Jesus even says this himself, the poor will always be with you, is what Jesus says. 
but that we not use Jesus' words as an excuse to stop seeing the poor or stop seeing people that are hurting and in need. And like I said earlier, this is not even about like making time because the priests and the Levite are done with their temple work. It wasn't time that they lacked. What they lacked was heart, not time. They lacked compassion for a person who was hurting, who may have been dead. We don't know. The second thing that I think we ought to notice is that Jesus really intentionally juxtaposes the two religious roles with the good Samaritan. He wants to paint a picture of contrast here with these characters. I think the people who are hearing Jesus' parable would have caught that if the man was dead and the Levite and the priest would have gone to him, that it would have made them unclean. I think they would have understood that. But Jesus is still trying to use this juxtaposition to get their attention. I think one of the things Jesus is trying to paint a picture of is that being religious and really doing God's work are two different things. Or said more plainly in our language, there is a difference in doing church and a difference between being the church. Those two are very different sorts of things. There are times in your life and in mine where it is right to say no to a long-held practice and belief that may be accompanied with religious attitude to be able to say yes to the person in front of us. When we used to live in Bend, uh, my wife and I and our family used to live in Bend, Oregon. And we moved up there, if you know our story, we moved up there to like help plant and lead a church in Bend. Um, And while we moved up there, and that was like our goal, our intent was to help, there was just this unique invitation from God. I don't think it was like anything Jackie and I came up with that was super magical, but just like we felt really called to the neighbors that we had. And so what that meant for us is that while we wanted to like serve and care for this church, we also wanted to like live missionally in the world where we already were. And so what that looked like in a very practical sense is we always participated in everything we could when it came to church life. We always participated in everything we could. The one exception to that was any time that our neighbors created space for us to be in relationship with them. So that meant like saying no to the Sunday morning gathering or Sunday evening gathering if the Super Bowl was on and our neighbor said, hey, would you come over and watch the Super Bowl? with me. Like this, this juxtaposition between religious duty and living embodied as a person of the Holy Spirit in the world for sake of mission and purpose, I think for too long we have like exchanged those two things. And it is time for us to see from this parable like the invitation to pursue the person in front of you rather than continue to do the like rote religious duty. I think that's one of the like two big unexpected twists in this story. The other unexpected twist in this story is is these these sorts of parables, these sorts of stories are actually commonplace for rabbis of that time. There would be a normal sort of like it's almost like the priest and the rabbi went to a bar joke. Like it's it's like that that's what's happening here is is Jesus is saying like there was a priest and the priest didn't do the right thing. 
And then there was a Levite, and the Levite didn't do the right thing. And, and this would have been normal, commonplace, for rabbis to use this type of teaching. But what's different is rabbis then would always have the hero of the story be like the ordinary farmer Jewish man who's obedient to God. That's how this story, when Jesus starts telling this story, his hearers think like, oh, this is where he's going with the story. Does that make sense a little bit? Okay. So, so to Jesus' listeners, just to be clear, the hero that should be coming in the story is the hardworking farmer who loves God and is faithfully serving him. That's what, that's what they think is about to happen. And then Jesus drops the good Samaritan on them. And this is a like really radical thing for Jesus to say that it's actually like really hard for us to comprehend. So radical that we as Americans or Westerners, like we don't really have a way to understand the comparison Jesus is making here with the Samaritan. Uh, a missionary in Palestine, in one of the books I was re- reading recently was talking about, so a missionary in Palestine is talking about how he would teach the scriptures as a Westerner to Easterners, and he would have to be very aware of how he translates things and communicates things. But so he's telling these stories and he's talking about the parables, but he was saying in Palestine, he could teach this story to Palestinians, but he could never never have a Jewish person be the good Samaritan. That like quite literally harm could be done to him from Palestinians who like harm could be done to him for speaking well like the hero is the Jewish guy that you despise. That's what Jesus is doing here. Like the best context we have is like fresh after the Twin Towers fell that Jewish people is the hero of the story. You see, Jewish people and Samaritans despise one another. The Samaritan people group was a people group that came from like unlawful Jewish marriages mixing with Gentiles. So it'd be like a Jew uh, hundreds of years before disobeying God's law and marrying a Gentile and their offspring a few generations later are the Samaritan people. That's who the Samaritans are. And so like this picture for the Jewish community is a picture of what is wrong with the world and wrong with their own people group. Often Jewish people, it would be common, Jewish people when they woke up in the morning would say, Lord, give me a good day. Give me this day my daily bread. Keep me safe today. And not like not a joke as much as it can be. Lord, I pray there will be no Samaritans in the resurrection on the last day. Is a common prayer of the Jewish people back then. Remember the question that the lawyer asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Love God and love neighbor. Who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells a story where your enemy is your neighbor. Your enemy is your neighbor. Jesus paints a picture that you are responsible for loving your enemy. That's what Jesus does in this parable. And Jesus doesn't say this outright, but he tells this through story, answering the questions that are posed to him in Luke 10. And then he continues on in verse 36. Which of these three do you think was a good neighbor 
to the man who fell into the hands of robbers. In verse 37, the expert in the law, or the lawyer, replied, the one who had mercy on him. Notice he doesn't even say the word Samaritan. Like, that's not a mistake. The one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So the culmination of this story at this moment is like one of the pictures that Jesus paints more directly in the Sermon on the Mount. The first nine months of this church plant, we journeyed into the Sermon on the Mount together. And this is what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, some of Jesus' greatest teaching, in my opinion. Matthew 5, verse 43 through 45. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, a common phrase or teaching of a rabbi back in that time. Verse 44, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. And that seems to be like one of the high points of teaching from this parable. To be a person of compassion, to be a person about what God has in front of you rather than like religious norms or religious duties. To be a person who will love and serve your enemy in this extravagant way as the parable goes on to describe it. But this is where like some of the beauty of parables as a way of teaching comes into play. Because if you remember my introductory teaching a few weeks ago uh, on Imagine the Kingdom, you'll know there's, there's some debate in Christian circles if the point of the parable is something that Jesus has said more clearly somewhere else, then maybe that's not just the point of the parable. Maybe there's something else to it. And so while I do believe that all the things that we just talked about are true of this parable, I do think there's a little bit more for us to see or learn from Jesus telling this story. The way St. Augustine, the way St. Augustine, one of the fathers of the early church, interprets this parable is with a lot of heavy allegory, where every detail represents another detail. And I don't necessarily wholeheartedly agree with Augustine's interpretation, but I do find value in one of the things that Augustine interprets although I do not agree with all of it, and it's where I want to begin to move toward closing today. One of the interesting things in the way that we map this story onto our lives and our understanding is that we always put ourselves in the position as the one who has the opportunity to be the good Samaritan. And I do think that is true, but I don't think that that's the only picture Jesus may be offering to his hearers that we are always the people of strength, that we are always the people of power and influence and affluence that can cover the needs of the needy and the hurting. And for many of us in the room, that is true. And, and I, I read about a West, like an Eastern theologian in Africa who describes this parable as like we should be people who are always willing to receive. That's how he teaches this parable. Very different perspective than the one that we look at. But what I appreciate about St. Appreciate about Augustine's perspective is that he sees the person lying half dead on the side of the road as us. That we are the people who have made an enemy and we are now the people lying half dead on the road and Jesus shows up to us as the good Samaritan. Romans 5 verse 10 says, For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? 
The reality is that with this parable, it is likely that Jesus is painting many pictures. But one of them, a a future foretelling, a prophetic picture to come, is that we need help in saving ourselves, that we cannot get off the ground half dead, that we need someone to come to us and journey with us toward healing and reconciliation and all the beauty that God offers us and healing and wellness as God desires for his people. You cannot help yourself. I just want you to imagine yourself, like even like your spiritual state, if you're comfortable with that, and just recognize like you cannot help yourself get up off the ground. You cannot get to a place of well-being and recovery on your own. And Jesus, like Jesus offers us that. That Jesus finds us in the muck and in the mire and brings us along on his own cost, on his own dime, laying down his life, taking on all the inconvenience of becoming human, being flesh, that we might be people who move from death to life. That while we were enemies of God, God came to rescue you from the place where you were dead or half dead, according to the picture. And this moment is a moment of salvation, a moment of saving, but it's also a moment of realization and transformation. You see, Jesus as the good Samaritan invites us also now to be like Christ. Jesus in his love for those far from him saves us. And then he invites us to embody his way of living in the world. God pours out his life for us and in doing so invites us to transform, to become different sorts of people that do the same, that pour our life out for the sake of others. To practice cruciform love, cross-shaped love, self-sacrificial love, to practice enemy love. Remember the question that the lawyer poses at the beginning is, who is my neighbor? And Jesus answers here and says, even your enemy, him too. He is your neighbor. So there are a few important questions that I just want us to consider as we close this parable. The first is, who is your enemy? The second is, who around you needs help? And the third is, where is Jesus inviting you to become more like him, a person of love? May we come to people, may we move through the world in the same way that Jesus came to us, with love and grace and kindness and abundance. This is the love that God gives you and then requires you to give to others. And this is Jesus painting a picture of a story that he invites you now to embody and to live into the world as you carry the Holy Spirit and the kingdom of God with you wherever it is that you go. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this teaching. We pray that it is not like just so common that it does not elicit our hearts that it does not like awaken us to the reality 
around us that we often just like bypass those hurting in the world? Would you help us to see what you see, God? So often in the parables, Jesus used the terms like that they may have ears, let them hear. Like may we have ears to hear this morning. May we have eyes to see this morning. May you transform our hearts by the power of your spirit through the proclamation of your word. And then God, I also just want to like, I want to pray and want to say like, for those of you that are hurting, that just like you need to be saved off the side of the road again, God's desire is for you to be saved, for you to be rescued, that he would take the burden and the cost upon himself to like lead you to recovery and health and well-being. And God, I thank you that that is your character. That is who you are. It's who you've always been and who you always will be. So even in my own heart, God, would you like rescue me again this morning? Would you rescue us again this morning? Would you call us to deeper dependence on you, deeper commitment to you, deeper trust that you are a good God who has good plans and good intentions for us? That we would not like take up the yoke of life by ourselves, but we would like journey with you and carry your yoke, which you declare is easy and the burden is light. God, we trust you. We trust you, Jesus. We love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.